the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening and welcome to The Advocate. I'm your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome to another wonderful night here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, as we have the snow falling and the Super Bowl on and all kinds of other great things happening. Uh, we're also welcoming ourselves to another brand new year here at uh, WHK. It's 2022. And uh, we're coming up with some new things to freshen up the show since we've been here since 2008. It's been a lot of years just flying by. But uh, we're here tonight. In the studio with us is Kathy Lux, our new co-host. Kathy, hi. This is definitely a brand new year, isn't it? <laughs> so we're going, we're going to call this radio, um, live radio. And uh, we have Steve Phillips is on the line also. Uh, so if you could bring him on, Craig, we'll bring him on from line one. Steve, are you there? Yes, I, hey, I can hear you. I can hear you there. Well, we have a full uh, full house tonight. I have Susan Graves, our producer, in here sitting next to me with a laptop computer. I have Kathy uh, Lux here as our, our co-host. And uh, we have Craig here, our engineer, getting our microphones ready. And... Um, we're going to try to do something a little bit different. By the way, the second uh, half of the show tonight is going to be with Kent State University's very own Kristen Stasiowski. She's the Assistant Dean of International uh, Education for Kent State University. We're going to talk about opportunities for international education and travel and why is it important? Why would anyone want to do that, especially in a post-COVID world? But uh, anyway, uh, what we're doing, we have Steve on the line. Steve, you're there with us? Yes, sir, I am. Oh, well, you're our, you are our IT guy now for The Advocate, and you're helping us out with everything from Facebook to website to email. And um, what we want to do is encourage listeners to interact with us while we're on the air live. And you can do that if you're anywhere near a computer or a cell phone with email. You can email us at what address, Steve? Okay, it's one word. It is the Advocate Radio at gmail.com. So anybody who has a Gmail address, you kind of know where this is coming from. And uh, the uh, username on it is the Advocate Radio. And what you'll do is that'll actually come into my computer here. And I'm down in uh, central Ohio, so we do all this is kind of neat by the, uh, the the computer internet and by phone. Uh, and I'll pick up any messages and then I'll forward them on to uh, Nick's account as I screen them. Uh, and I know tonight's probably a quiet night. We're just getting started with it, but uh, I will be continuing to look at that uh, email as the night progresses, and then I'll send up anything uh, and if, uh, send up anything up to Nick and Kathy. And uh, if you could could please just put your first name on the email and uh, where you're calling from and how you're listening to the Advocate tonight. Sounds good. So we'll try some. If anybody's out there near computers, send something out so we can. Uh, see how you're doing tonight and comment about the weather or comment about the Super Bowl or something. It's uh, the Advocate Radio at gmail.com. And Kathy, how are you? 
I'm doing well. How are you? Now we can hear her beautiful voice on the radio. That microphone's up and running. Craig, thank you very much Wonderful. for getting that set up. Thank you, Craig. Well, well, very good. Well, we're going to be talking with uh, Kathy throughout the year here coming up, and it's going to be interesting because I, I think we're going to take different views towards some things. And uh, based yeah. on our background, uh, as you've been listening to me, probably uh, ad nauseum for the last uh, nearly 20 years, uh, the um, as a lawyer, I, I'm sort of fact-based and evidentiary-based, and that sort of runs against uh, these different political conspiracy theories and beliefs that are out there that, in my opinion, are not supported by evidence. Well, Kathy's going to be my eyes and ears into the Netherland over there. We're going to talk about what is something that well, the I, news media is not covering? I, I have more of a, uh, my approach is more of if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so where you coming from things as an attorney, I get the sense that you you need absolute hardcore science-based or somehow fact-based evidence, as you said. Yeah, but to me, <laughs> I get this, and uh, things just don't ring true sometimes, and it's it's a gut feeling, and I go from there. But you know, my problem is that people are so good at uh, coming up with persuasive arguments and persuasive stories that, uh, if not totally untrue, might be embellished to the point that they're very, very believable, and mm-hmm. that's why. Uh, I was just at a legal seminar down in Florida last week, and uh, there was a question about how to handle a will uh, when there were some questions about destroying wills electronically and so on. And my question was, um, who do I represent? Depends on who I represent will determine who I'm, uh, how I'm going to answer the question. Because what happens is that there are so many good explanations, whether we're talking about one story or the other, both sides get to argue their story quite persuasively. Mm-hmm. And my typical response is, well, after hearing your version of the story, if that's true, this is a very bad situation. But how do we know whether something's true or not? And that's where you and I are going to have some good-natured conflict, I think. <laughs> I think you're right. You're right. And as an attorney, Nick, do you, do you approach things from a win-win position? Where both sides should win, or do you approach them from a only one side is correct? If you look at any situation and you drill down into it enough, you'll find out there's enough different information, there's enough specific information that you can get that you can make your your story sound stronger or the other side can make your story sound weaker. Mm-hmm. And it's basically matching up, say, two columns Column A, the column that supports your story. Column B, the column that supports the other side of the story. So, so what is a victory in law is basically, one, trying to get to the truth, and, and the truth should always prevail, but then the debate is what is the truth. Absolutely. So how do we know that? That's the bit We don't most of the time. <laughs> oh, I know. You and I have just been arguing over the last week or so about, yes. about issues that we can't seem to. And, and if you think about it, Nick, Going back how many years, when you and I were both working at the city of North Royalton. Beautiful North Royalton. Beautiful North Royalton. And um, there was a lot we didn't agree on then, but it 
somehow seemed to become productive. It was it was so good because it's how I dream things were back in the old days in this country, where you have political opponents arguing you know, very vigorously for their side of an argument, but then afterwards they can go out to lunch or go out for a beer or something like that and exactly. and be civil to one another. Yes. We we seem to have lost that where most sides want the other side dead. Dead, you're right. Or, or at least living <laughs> in another country far, far away without email. You're right. <laughs> so. You're right. But... Yes. Uh, Anyway, I think we're going to be looking at those things from two different standpoints. We're going to be adding your standpoint mm-hmm. uh, and my standpoint, and we'll see if we can reach uh, some consensus to that, and and uh, as well as bringing people in uh, as as guests. You'll be bringing some people in as guests. And, and, yes, looking forward. And you'll be able to interview them, and I'll be able to cross-examine them, oh uh, so to speak. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, but we're all excited about being able to, if you're listening to the show, and I know there are a number of people out there who are listening to the show from time to time. We, we hear feedback from people. Well, now you can do it with uh, just sending us an email at uh, theadvocateradio at gmail.com. And uh, Steve will intercept that email and send it on over to us at the show here or in the studio where Susan Graves will be sitting here at the uh, computer and taking in all this email stuff and join our debate here. But... Uh, in, in any event, we're going to take a short break here in a little bit, but uh, we're looking forward to really having some fiery arguments. Some good, some good deep discussions, yes. I think so, <laughs> yes. Well, I remember when we would argue back at City, there were arguments. <laughs> but they were good nature. No, not good nature. It you, had to be done. You, yes, I recall us walking the halls still debating as we were on our way into meetings. Yeah. Well, which is true, and I always looked at things then as I do now as a lawyer, and uh, I look at it from the standpoint of um, what are the facts, what is the truth, and then analyze it as to what is the best collective combined solution we can come up with, and we always seemed to do that. We do. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're sitting here in the studios of WHK tonight, this uh, cold, wintry night in Cleveland, Ohio, with Kathy Lux and Susan Graves. And our, our engineer, Craig, and, uh, and your host, Nick Phillips. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be back uh, to talk more about what's the advocate going to be doing in 2022 already. Wow, where did that time go? I know. Oh, my. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with Kathy Lux and Susan Graves and Craig, our engineer tonight. This is Nick Phillips, and... Um, we're doing a live segment of The Advocate talking about what we're going to be doing here in the year 2022. And uh, with 2022, we're going to be, among other things, having more interaction with people out there in cyberspace. And uh, to communicate with us during the show, you can reach us at theadvocateradio at gmail.com. And uh, we have an email that came in, believe it or not. And the question is, how long have we been doing the radio? And uh, I saw the question, and I was telling Kathy about it. We started uh, the first radio show for, the, for this group, started in the year 2000, and it started at WERE Radio, and the show was called The PM Hour. It was an evening show, of all things, so The PM. Mm-hmm. And the name of the law firm, Phillips and Millie, so the name, and it was really kind of catchy. It was kind of cute. But uh, we actually began doing... Uh, radio show like we're doing now back then in the year 2000 that was one year 
before 9-11 happened. And we were on the air when 9-11 happened and everything was just uh, turned upside down. And over these last decades that we've been doing radio, we've had these topsy-turvy events that have changed our life. We had the economic recession of 2008. Remember when everyone's uh, retirement plans just went down the the tubes, Mm -hmm. slowly made it back? I remember it well. And manufacturing took a horrible hit then. I remember because my husband, who is deceased, uh, I remember. At, at that time, it struggled so horribly with uh, so much manufacturing going to China and sat on a committee that met with uh, elected officials in Washington to discuss what was happening and come up with some ideas. And sadly, at the time, everyone said the the United States had to shift gears and get more into the service industry. More or less said, we're just going to give up manufacturing. Ouch. And I look back at that and think, if you, you know, fast forward to today, where we are relying in some instances on China and people that are not necessarily our friends for things that we absolutely need, and it's harming us. And it's a threat to our national security, too. Well, it was when we started shutting down our steel plants, our manufacturing capabilities for steel, relying heavily on foreign steel. And if we ever got into a problem where we needed steel and the foreign governments who were in charge of making the steel decided they're not selling to the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, we would be really uh, in trouble. And, And I know going back to 2008 when we were talking about manufacturing, you guys are involved in the aerospace industry. I believe, and mm-hmm. and with that manufacturing aerospace components, and we were facing at that time the same kind of supply chain problems. If you don't get parts, you can't assemble your product. Mm-hmm. If you can't assemble your product and send it to uh, an aircraft manufacturer who's going to put that into an airplane, that gets held up. And we see the same thing going on now with uh, computer chips and the fact that automobile manufacturing is really screeched down. Yes. Yes, and and also, um, I think, as an offshoot of 2008, many people got out of manufacturing. Uh, CNC operators, people that could actually operate some of the more sophisticated technology, mm-hmm. um, lost their jobs, places closed down. And then when things started to rebound a few years ago or so, uh, and they really did, um, you couldn't find skilled workers. Boy, it sounds like what's happening right now. Yes. So many people don't want to come back to work, not because they hate work, but because they've made a personal choice mm-hmm. that uh, they're going to live life, uh, especially with this COVID yes. thing, which is unprecedented in the lifetimes of everyone who's living now. Uh, and this whole cohort of people, no matter what your age is now, will always have this in your past, the pandemic. And, and I wonder, that's, tr- that's so true, um, it'll be interesting to see in 20 years how people look back at it, but I wonder if everyone being forced to stay home with their children for periods of time made people rethink what it is to have a family life and be a family. I suspect it may have. I don't have evidence. No. I, <laughs> okay, that... 
that was a shot at it me was. being a lawyer. Right? I, could, I, I felt that it, it pierced my shoulder right in the right side over here. But uh, but no, I, I'd like to think that was true because people certainly, if nothing else, during the pandemic, uh, being told instantly one day you have to quarantine for fourteen days, mm-hmm. you had to stay home, a lot of time to be quiet and reflect on what is life all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, that's a big thing. The, the fact is people who work, what, uh, 18, 20 hours a day and kill themselves to make the dollar, uh, I think a lot of people are finding out that's not what life is about. So I think people are becoming more philosophical, more introspective. And I agree. They're, they're going to look at what do they need to make themselves feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and with so many children home, for long periods of time from school and doing online learning and that sort of thing. I think th- that parents got to see what, what these children are actually learning. And that created a whole new dynamic in our country. Well, speaking of another new dynamic, just looking at the interest that the average American now has in school boards. Uh, I I think I was on the school board in North Royalton for a number of years, and we didn't have crowded meetings. Uh, it was sort of like we made sure we had the school buses and the teachers and cafeteria lunches and so on and mm-hmm. curriculum. Uh, but uh, now everyone is looking at the detail of the curriculums and yes. how money is being spent and so on. So I, I think there's a lot more engagement we're seeing. Whether you like the politics or you're sick and tired of the politics, I've never seen so many Americans engaged in politics as the, we had before. And that's a wonderful thing. I think it is. I, I think that's, that's one yes. of the good things and one of the bad things about a democracy is that you get everybody's opinion. And that's mm-hmm. part of a democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to start shutting people out, and that's why the Constitution and the freedom of speech is so important. But uh, I know we have a few more minutes. I want to talk to Steve. Steve, you're still with us? Hello. Uh, yes, can you hear me, Nick? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Hey, a question about social media. People can reach us by uh, sending us an email uh, on the advocateradio.gmail.com, at gmail.com. Um, is there anything going on with uh, any of the other social media sites? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now is I've got uh, multiple sites opened. Uh, <clears throat> watching a little bit of CNN, see what's happening with Ukraine. Um, and I know one came through, one email came through about what are your thoughts in regards to uh, kind of like the future of inflation and also the uh, the Ukraine situation that's happening right now. Well, we have about, uh, Craig, what do we have, about three minutes? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's take care of everyone. Hit Ukraine first or inflation, Kathy? Oh, I'd say Ukraine. <laughs> I'd say Ukraine. So I don't know what your perspective is on this, Nick, but... I'm watching it, and I heard an interesting comment made uh, by Tulsi Gabbard. Um, was on one of the talk shows on television mm-hmm. um, the last day or so, and she she talked about that she feels there's an easy remedy to this uh, without going to war, and basically that that is if NATO would all just agree and tell Russia that they will not admit Ukraine into NATO, that that would do it. That would cause Russia to back off. They don't want NATO on their border. They don't want Ukraine a member of NATO and having that group 
on their mm-hmm. border. Mm-hmm. And that that's really what this is all about. When, when Germany made an ultimatum to, uh, to the English, and, and Chamberlain assumed a policy of appeasement with the Germans, uh, and, and that happened, uh, the, the thought was that Hitler will not go further. Uh, the, the fact that we have what's going on in Russia, the fact that they have about 175,000 troops lined up on three sides of Ukraine, uh, the, um, the, the situation is such that weakness is not going to cause peace, yet war is so incredibly horrible. I, I don't know if everyone is aware of the fact that when you line up all these thousands of troops on one side and thousands on the other and start firing lethal weapons at one another, we're going to have a lot of people get killed and maimed. And once you start down that slippery slope of war, it can escalate very quickly. But I think we have to finish that discussion next week. Yes. I think so, and then we'll we'll talk about uh, talk about inflation also, which has to be controlled, and there have to be effective policies, or things can go out of hand. We again take a look at Germany with inflation they had back in the 1930s; it was uh, something really really terrible. But uh, in in any event, I think we have about a minute to go with Steve. Uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, the website. We're going to be getting that uh, up to date and taking emails and stuff. And Kathy. We're, we're going to have to figure out how we can argue more. We're sounding too nice to each oh, other. We'll get there. <laughs> I have faith. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, I know you won't back off, and, and I'll be polite but persistent. So we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> sort of spice this uh, this stuff up a bit. But, Absolutely. Yeah, we we, we end up. We haven't scratched the surface yet. No, we haven't. But uh, so far, we're agreeing on too many things. But there's ways of looking at things. So. Uh, that will be it. Well, anyway, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after this. Uh, these words with our wonderful sponsors. Thank you for staying tuned. Come on back and hear us. We're going to hear Dr. Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University, the Assistant Dean for International Relations and International Studies. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And in the next two segments, we're going to be talking about something we want to get back to, and that is education. We're not talking too much about COVID, but to talk about education and traveling, foreign traveling, that is an important thing. And uh, joining us tonight, we have uh, Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University. Dr. Stasiowski is the Assistant Dean of International Programs and Education Abroad for the College of Arts and Science at Kent State, and is also an assistant professor of Italian language and literature in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at Kent State University. She received her Ph.D. from Yale University in Italian language and literature and has taught Italian language, literature, cinema, history, and culture in both Florence, Italy, and at Kent State University here in Ohio. She recently published a chapter entitled The Divine, Com- Divine Comedy for All Time, Dante's Enduring uh, Relevance for the Contemporary Reader in Italian Pop Culture, Media, Product, imagery, uh, Imageries, Rome, Italy. Okay, that was a mouthful. But let me welcome <laughs> Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a thrill. How are Thank you? Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It is. Uh, well, it's great to talk about something 
that doesn't have to do with the, the grim realities that we had to experience with COVID over the last two years. But uh, the idea that people are still getting educated, people are still going to college and universities, and people are becoming educated in our culture is an important thing. Um, what is going on with Kent State and its uh, foreign education programs? And give us just a little rundown of what's been happening at Kent over these past decades. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, you hear a lot these days about the great resignation. I think instead, when we think in terms of education, of the great enrichment. Um, you know, clearly, uh, student mobility in terms of studying abroad uh, in any of our international programs was deeply affected by the suspensions and closures and uh, shutdowns and lockdowns because of COVID. But now that the world, at least in some sense, is opening up again, I think that we're seeing a great resurgence of interest in being able to be physically in a different place in the world. Uh, and certainly Kent State has had a long tradition of success with international programs. One of our oldest programs is, of course, our campus in Florence, Italy. Uh, that program has been around in various forms for about 50 years. 2022 is our 50th anniversary, in fact. Uh, and this summer, we're happy to see that applications for the Summer Institute program, which is a four-week uh, program in the month of June and then another four-week program in the month of July, are over 400. So students, despite the challenges that are presented by travel and despite some of the financial difficulties as a result of COVID, are undeterred in wanting to be able to explore the world. And so enriching themselves through education and enriching themselves in particular through international education, I think is something of a priority for them and is certainly seen as a way for them to leverage their skills and their education and their aspirations professionally so that they can attain all those things that they're really hoping for in their lives. You know, if uh, they do go to Florence, to the Kent State campus, my wife and I had the opportunity to go there as alumni. We had an alumni program. We had several couples come out. And uh, you mentioned something a few moments ago, the fact that the campus, the Kent State University campus in Florence, Italy, I have to emphasize that, has been there for 50 years. And what that means is that we have, among other things, we have staff members and faculty who are Italian. They live there in Italy. They've been with the university for many years. And when someone from Ohio uh, or from Kent State University generally comes out to Florence, uh, it's almost like uh, you're, you're being welcomed by family members because you're from the other part of Kent from the <laughs> viewpoint of the people in Florence. So we had a, had a wonderful time. And Kent State's not the only university having programs like this. I think most of the other universities have European programs. But uh, it's sort of uh, it, there's a cost involved in having a student go out to Florence or going out to any European educational program. And uh, they have to ask themselves, well, what, what is the educational benefit? How is this going to help them with an employer by, by going out uh, and spending a summer, say, in Florence, Italy? Absolutely. And that's something that, um, you know, international programs, especially at Kent, um, though Florence is an important program and one of our longest standing programs, we have programs of any length of time in any part of the world and in any subject area that a student wishes to study. So if it's a question of doing archaeology or field work in biology uh, or religious studies or philosophy, there's any number of programs that a student can do. Uh, and precisely the diversity of locations and subject area is what appeals to our students based on their professional aspirations. 
Um, there's all kinds of data out there, a lot of it uh, from NAFSA and Open Doors that suggests that employers are looking for students now more than ever that have some kind of international competency or at least awareness. And that's true even if they don't plan on working abroad or living abroad at any point in their careers. The world is so interconnected and so dynamic now that even staying in Northeast Ohio, as many of our students choose to do, um, becomes a more complex uh, situation to navigate when you've got linguistic diversity and ethnic diversity and racial diversity and religious diversity. So that even something simple like putting together, say, a schedule for someone uh, on a wait staff in a restaurant can be complicated if you're taking into account different religious holidays, for example. And so to be an effective manager in that circumstance is to have had an exposure to the way that different cultures at different times of the year might be uh, operating on an entirely different calendar from the one that, say, a corporate American standpoint might might wish to accept. And so when I'm talking with students, I think it's very easy to demonstrate to them that in any field, whether it's medicine, whether it's law, um, whether it's in um, any type of teaching scenario, um, even if it's dealing with, you know, a part-time thing, like trying to be an emergency medical technician, the way we communicate with each other is d- deeply affected by our cultural context, uh, where we were raised, by whom we were raised, the music we listen to, the films we see, the television shows we're exposed to. And so when you change that fundamentally by getting out of the American context uh, of Ohio, that really is an, an eye-opening experience that then becomes a very concrete benefit for applying to to any job in the future. Before the students go out uh, to Europe for a course, say in the summer, uh, you work with them and and you sort of lay out what they can expect and they have a lot of questions. But when they come back, I'm I'm assuming they come back all excited for their experience. (laughs) But what, what are some of the things that really surprise them and they feel very good about experiencing? Well, Nick, you actually happened on something that I think is really important to underline, um, you know, and especially now at our time in which people have returned to really wishing to be in different places and to expose themselves to travel. Just simply moving from point A to point B and changing your geography isn't enough, really, when we're talking about international education. People travel the world all the time, and sometimes by virtue of doing so, without a purposeful or intentional engagement with otherness and with difference, can lead sometimes to becoming even more rigid in one's own beliefs that home is the best place ever. Uh, And certainly home is a wonderful place. Um, But the before and after aspects of an exposure to international education are really the areas where we try to encourage our students to do that deep critical thinking and engagement that can lead them to a kind of cultural humility, if you will, kind of willingness to open their hearts and minds and certainly their ears to the ways in which difference can be something that not only should be tolerated, um, but that should really be appreciated and valued. And so when a student returns from an experience abroad, they're excited to share their stories and their experiences. They're excited in some senses also to add a second major or a minor in in a subject area that they had never dreamt could be enjoyable to them or purposeful in, in attaining their professional goals. But what we like to see and what often happens is that they come home with this unique appreciation of the good fortune they have uh, to have the privileges and benefits of what's available to them in the United States. But they also have a sense that it's not only that in the United States 
you can live a good life and that you can live a productive life and that you can live to appreciate all the variety that there is. So when a student comes home, say, from Florence, as you mentioned, they not only feel that the United States is home, but they also feel like another foreign place that once was so unimaginably different for them that they thought they could never possibly accept it at home as home is now another version of home for them. So they come home to Kent State because they've gone abroad to Florence or to any of our other destinations. It's really beautiful. Well, what a wonderful life's experience. We're talking to Dr. Kristen Staziowski, the Assistant Dean for International Programs at Kent State University, talking about getting students out there to Europe, among other places. Uh, to experience something more than than just living in our own backyard. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, Kristen to talk more about foreign travel and, and why it's so important to take advantage of these opportunities if you have the opportunity made available to you. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University. She is the Assistant Dean for International Programs, and we're talking about the opportunities of going to Europe, specifically Florence, Italy, and how useful that is to the future life and working career of a Kent State student, or any college student for that matter. Uh, Kristen, thank you again for joining us tonight. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Well, uh, you know, we've, we've talked for years. I've known you for quite some time. The whole idea of having an experience that gets you out of this country to meet people who are living in other cultures, um, students come back surprised that these are really nice people many times. You can get along with people from different societies, different cultures. Um, and that sort of fits into the fact that your program is in the College of Arts and Science at Kent State University and is part of a, f- a fundamental liberal arts education that people should get. You know, when we talk about people going to university and, and getting an education, say, in accounting or business or music, uh, where does this cultural thing come in and, and how does that fit into what a liberal arts education is? And, We're certainly not talking about turning everybody into communists, which some people think (laughs) liberal arts is all about, but it sort of enhances and enriches the experience of life, I think, my opinion. Yes, Yes, I think so, too, and I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about higher education in the United States lately, and certainly about international education, and oftentimes those two things are not seen as very well connected, that international education is a kind of a la carte separate aspect of what students can do when they're at a university. They can do leadership training. They can have experiences in student affairs and residential life. They can join a student organization or participate in a team sport somehow. And and then they can also study abroad. And so all of these things are in some sense side dishes to what they could otherwise do within their degree program. I don't take that view of international education. I think that like the very heart of what a liberal arts education is meant to be at a university, an education that prepares a student to be able to think critically, a student to be able to engage with people of different cultures, to be able to say, for example, 
hold two contrary ideas in their mind at the same time and be able to navigate a world in which two things that are opposite uh, can somehow be reconciled even. I think that those aspects of a liberal arts education can best be found through an international experience because students are placed in a new context in which they have to then question their assumptions. and They have to be, in some sense, reflective and self-critical about the way that they think about their thinking. Um, well, you know, and I, being a, a medieval Italian scholar, uh, you know, students mm-hmm. assumed that I would never have a job in my life. And after all, who would read medieval Italian poetry after all? And yet I don't even see the academic aspect of my work and research and teaching as contradictory to, to international education. I'm frequently on campus talking to students about the way that Dante and the Divine Comedy, for example, has uh, written famously the words that are uttered uh, by the mouth of Ulysses in the Inferno when he says, consider your origins. You are not meant to live as brutes, but to pursue virtue and knowledge. I mean, nothing sounds more liberal artsy than that, you know, sends parents running for the hills saying, go get a business degree. And yet I comment that that word to consider is really made up of two words, etymologically speaking. One is con, with, and the other is cedar, which means the stars. The idea of consideration in Dante's day was to thought of was thought of as a way of returning the mind to the stars by asking it to think more highly about things. And I think if we think about higher education, using the faculties of one's mind in order to not just reach for the stars, but to be amongst the stars through processes of thinking, through elevating our, our discourse and through elevating our perspective, I think that's the real key. And I think that there's nothing better at helping us to gain a new perspective than changing our context and changing our circumstances. And so that's something that immediately when you cross a physical border, like studying abroad, helps you to really break down internal barriers and borders and boundaries inside of ourselves. So it really is on the very fault line of a liberal arts education, the very idea of traveling abroad. You know, using the term enlightenment uh, is a personal thing that as we go through life, we're enlightened by a lot of things as we discover things. Uh, You mentioned the term during the last segment, cultural humility. Uh, I, I can sort of guess what that means, but is that a term of art with special meaning? And I'm glad you asked that, too. Uh, Believe it or not, that was a term first coined in the late 90s by healthcare professionals. Um, And they, at that time, thought of it as a lifelong process of self-reflection and self-critique, whereby an individual not only learns about another person's culture, but that starts with an examination of one's own beliefs and cultural identities. And I find it fascinating that it was really healthcare professionals who started to think about that because in dealing with patient interactions, one has to think about things like, does the way that the patient in your office expresses his or her pain, um, is that relative to culture? Might someone defer to you differently if in their culture they think of a physician as a figure of authority versus as someone who is a partner in, in, a, in a sense? And so approaching people with humility um, is is a great beginning way to establish a new relationship. And that's something, too, that really is um, very central to what I study. Uh, humility in, in Italian is related to the word for uomo, which is the word for man, um, that, you know, we're, we're made of the earth and that get, uh, lowering oneself is a way in which ultimately one can become 
exalted. Uh, Dante famously in the Paradiso, for example, in a prayer to the Virgin Mother, claims that she is both humble and exalted. And so there is a way that the hierarchies of life can be inverted. Uh, St. Augustine in his Confessions was famous for saying that, you know, if you want to raise yourself up, you should begin by lowering yourself down. Heck, you too said it. If you want to learn, you know, kiss the sky, you better learn how to kneel. And so the idea of allowing yourself a certain level of openness toward others where you're really asking more of what would be important for them to express to you and you're allowing yourself to question your own beliefs allows both both parties to come together to try and find a middle ground. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, well, especially today in well, terms of civil discourse. Yes. Well, well, it is. Well, yeah, political discourse nowadays is so uh, divided where you just take one position and you wrap yourself in the bubble of that particular ideology and you don't see the other side whether you're far left or far right mm-hmm, uh, they're mm-hmm. separated and and we you, you mentioned something earlier that uh, how how you can maintain an understanding of both sides and then be able to still be open to consider both sides and maybe come up with a third view toward toward a, a particular issue but uh, I would assume that you know American students who think they're really great, they go in one of these foreign exchange programs or foreign education programs and come back with a cultural humility knowing that, gee, they're they're not the only smartest people in the world. There's some other people out there who aren't too shabby either. Absolutely. And, you know, one important example is also in terms of language. Um, You know, there, there might be a tendency for someone who, um, who's not been exposed to other languages, to hear other languages spoken in the United States, and to say, well, you know, you should speak English because we're here and we speak English, or to assume that that other person might not be smart or educated because they're not speaking English. But as soon as a student who can't speak another language is in a foreign context, and most of our programs allow you to, without any other language other than English, matriculate into programs abroad, uh, when they're in that context in which they don't speak the the nation's language, uh, and all of a sudden they're made to feel like they're lesser than or that people are not giving them their due attention or respecting the learning and knowledge and experience that they have, it fundamentally changes then when they come back to the United States and they see someone who's in a difficult language context. And it it then allows them to say, well, you know, I learned what it felt like to be in a minority. I I learned what it felt like to be judged on face value. And therefore, I'm going to make a change in the way that I, from this point forward, uh, think about dealing with otherness in my own country. And and just that little pause that it gives a student before they engage with someone else, that's that's a huge moment. And after all, with the amount of work there is to be done in so many ways, uh, in so many different countries and in so many sectors, whether it's with climate change or whether it's with health care or whether it's in social justice or anything in between, the collaborations that have to take place means that we really can't avoid one another. And so, unfortunately, you know, the Internet is working against us this way. The Internet encourages... Oh, that's a subject for a whole other other interview. But uh, we're out of of time. We're out of time, Kristen. But I'd like to thank Dr. Kristen Stasiowski from Kent State University, the Assistant Dean for International Programs, encouraging people to get out there and and really take advantage of these opportunities. But, uh, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks again. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, 
healthy and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning, and only my mind for company. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.